From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour was made in 2016 with a headline that read, quote, burying a 1950s planning disaster. In a piece for Bloomberg, civil engineer and urban planning expert Norman Garrick wrote about the partial removal of Rochester's famed inner loop, stating that the project might make the city of Rochester, quote, the city that finally breaks a ruinous mid-century mold, end quote. Isn't that something? About seven, eight years ago, the eyes of the nation were thinking Rochester was going to be this national model. And of course, Rochester is one of about 30 cities that have explored rethinking their highway systems in recent years. In 2021, the Congress for New Urbanism counted 33 proposed projects in 28 United States cities. While some plan to refill their highways and make them walkable areas, Others want to cover their old highways with parks. Still others, as reported by the New York Times, plan to replace them with highway-like streets. And then there are many other cities that are continuing to expand their highway systems. In Rochester, refilling part of the Interloop officially began around 2015, but the first proposals came to light in the 1990s. The project received a boost several years ago with President Biden's infrastructure bill that aimed at reconnecting communities. In Rochester, the goal is to do that and to address the racial disparities that the project inadvertently created. In 2021, our former WXXI colleague James Brown reported that city officials anticipated the Interloop project would reintegrate about 22 acres or about 16 football fields into the cityscape. So is Rochester leading the way among American cities? What can it learn from other cities like Syracuse or Detroit or others that have considered such projects? Are there success stories to point to? And what's next after this project is complete? Our guests will discuss these questions at an upcoming Reshaping Rochester event through the Community Design Center. It's their annual series. They bring in experts from around the country. Always interesting conversations there. And we often have a chance to talk to their expert guests before they make that presentation. So I will welcome our guests now. And Norman Garrick is with us. Dr. Garrick is a professor of civil engineering at the University of Connecticut, former member of the National Board of the Congress for the New Urbanism, and co-chair of the Congress for the New Urbanism's Transportation Task Force and a CNU fellow. Norman, thank you for making time for the program today. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to being back in Rochester. And Karen Nozick is with us. Karen is executive director of the Community Design Center of Rochester. I think, Karen, is this our first time talking to each other on this program? It's nice to have you. It is, indeed. Thank you so much. I listen to Connections regularly, and it's really an honor to be here with you today. Well, it's great to have you. And, Karen, I'll just ask you briefly. you got an event coming up on Thursday at the MAG, right, at the Memorial Art Gallery. That's correct. Um, It's this Thursday where it's free and open to the public, and we have a reception beginning at 530 in the uh, atrium of the Memorial Art Gallery. All right, so the reception at 530, the event starts at 630 at the Memorial Art Gallery, titled After the Interloop, What's Next? And um, I know they're looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to hearing from, from Norman because when you go back to 2014, 2015, 2016, This was an interesting time here, Norman. Here in Rochester, I remember getting a phone call from, you know, it was one of my first first shows I think we hosted back in 2014 when I took over this job was on the Interloop. And somebody called the show and said, I love the Interloop. It's my favorite place to drive in Rochester because no one's ever on it. Don't fill it. (laughs) Uh, You know, which seemed to make the argument against it. Uh, But I, I also understand 
that there was a lot of emotion involved and, and a lot of um, a lot of damage that was done over years. And Rochester's is not the only one. Take me back to that time when you were writing and, you know, sort of had your gaze on, on Rochester, what you were seeing then, Norman. Well, uh this was, I think, um, before, yes, it was definitely before um, this idea of freeway removal was on the national radar. Since Rochester removed, uh, removed part of the interloop, uh, inner loop, sorry, um, it's become part of the national discussion about transportation in America. And now we see with the Biden administration that they're actually putting money where their mouths where their mouth is, so they're um, they're helping people around the country to look at this issue in various communities all over the country. So uh, um, Rochester definitely is a leader in this area. Do you do you have a, a kind of a city in your mind that stands out when people, whether they're from Rochester or elsewhere, they say, well. You know, what's an example of a success story? Is there one that jumps out to you? There are lots. <laughs> um, Portland, Oregon was one of the first in America that removed the freeway. Um, they removed the freeway on its waterfront. And you can see how Portland has boomed since the 1970s, not just because of the freeway, but lots of things that have been done there to facilitate getting around that city without cars. So they have built a light rail, they have built a suburban rail, they are the, one of the best biking city in America, they're one of the safest cities in the country, and they have a downtown that, well, well a city that is absolutely bo- booming, and unlike a lot of cities around America, they have been growing in population since they made these moves. So when we go back to why these sunken highways and why these highways divided communities, why that happened in the first place, Norman, I used the term in the intro that, you know, often what you hear from designers now as well, it inadvertently, you know, did damage. I, I wonder if you think there was more intention than that or, 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 or how you view it. Uh, well, it's a it's a tough question because um, in some in many cases it was not inadvertent what was done to black communities all over the country. Um, the highways were placed where they were placed to divide um, cities, and that happened over and over. I am actually surprised when I read these stories from lots of places, including places like New Orleans, lots of places in the south, lots of places in the north, even St. Paul, Minnesota, etc. But um, the other part of the story is not just about where the highways were put, but it's also about what the um, planners and designers were trying to achieve. And what what they were trying to achieve was, in essence, the bidding of what is now known as the highway lobby. So GM and all the car companies, the oil companies, all the people involved with selling and making things for cars and selling concrete and asphalt, all of those people people worked really hard in the 1930s to convince people that cars were about freedom. And even though there was a lot of public pushback, that way of thinking really took hold in America after the war. And so... What we were trying to achieve 
was to build a society where everybody could get everywhere by cars. And that was really damaging to cities like Rochester because Rochester was not built on that basis. So you can see the decanting of population to the suburbs. You can see all the economic vitality going to these places. And that is really the secondary impact of the type of transportation system that we were promoting in the country. And so what to do about that? Listeners, if you've got thoughts on what you've seen so far, or if you want to weigh in on what happens next as Rochester takes its next steps in filling the inner loop and um, connecting communities, thinking about how to use different spaces and how to connect communities, uh, it's 844-295-TALK. It's toll-free, 844-295-8255, 263-WXXI if you're calling from Rochester, 263-9994. You can email the program connections at wxxi.org. Norman, what is it that you think has led to this, I, I guess I would call it a movement, uh, several dozen cities, Rochester among them, either filling their sunken high, highways or sort of trying to make amends for that? Well, Rochester was, was one of the last cities to build a freeway in its um, core. So I believe that happened in the, the late 60s, while a lot of cities were much earlier. And by the late 60s, it was becoming quite obvious in lots of places that this approach to transportation was not working. So even as early as the mid-70s, people in Rochester were calling for a reversal of, of, of the approach. And um, it's just that people saw the destruction that has occurred in cities all around. They saw... The, um, the discriminatory nature of um, the, this approach to transportation. So it, it, it's really an awakening of awareness of the problems with trying to um, get everybody to use cars for everything. In your piece from Bloomberg, you wrote um, the following on, on what has happened uh, here. Quote, our research at the University of Connecticut shows that cities that transformed their downtowns with freeways, parking, and monolithic developments were flooded with traffic, even while they were losing jobs and residents. The few American cities that maintained most of their pre-war urban fabric saw much less growth in traffic congestion and have retained their character as vibrant walking cities, end quote. So just to kind of keep connecting the points here, um, Norman, so cities like Rochester, you put these sunken highways in, and what you end up doing is you create this this fast track for residents who once lived downtown to go live in the suburbs. They don't spend as much time, but if they want to get downtown, they can do it fast. They can get in and out fast. They don't live there anymore, so the, the, the people leave. But jobs tend to follow people, so the jobs decrease. I mean, th those are all things that sort of flowed from one another? They're, yes, it's probably a little bit more complicated than that in that um, part of the policy of um, the highway centric approach is that you also had to have some place to put the cars. So you, you can see downtown Rochester is largely parking lots and parking garages. And that is where a lot of the vitality of the city was lost because you had to make space for the cars in the city. And cities were very proactive in making sure that people could park in their cities. So where there were housing, where there were jobs, where there were um, shops, a lot of those are gone. And you see it from city, 
city, I'll give you one example. In my capital city of Hartford, even just 20 years ago, we had, you know, about 25% of the downtown is parking. And just um, even in that context, a few years ago, there was a move to tear down this beautiful early 1900 buildings that was active, that had a piano store in on the first floor. And the plan was to take down that building for a parking lot. So it was very, very deliberative what was happening in these places. But Norman, let, let me ask both Norman and Karen about a little bit of parking culture here. Because Norman, let me start with you on this. So when you talk to Rochesterians, and sometimes I'm among them, probably, I'm probably part of the problem sometimes, or problem as I see it. If you talk to people, people will say, we don't have that much parking. It's, it's hard to park sometimes. I can never park when I want to go where I want to go. Um, and by that, what they actually sort of mean is like, sometimes when I want to go somewhere in Rochester, I can't park directly in front and walk directly in the front door. I might have to walk 100 yards. I might have to walk 200 yards. I mean, I went to Java's recently um, to get a coffee and kill a couple of hours waiting for um, dinner. I think on Valentine's. I'm trying to... And, and so um, I, I, had to park, I had to drive past Main Street and park on the other side. And then I was kind of like annoyed because it was kind of cold. And I was like, well, this is a long... It was like nothing. And I love walking. And I was like, what, what is wrong with me for, for five seconds of being annoyed? There was parking. It just wasn't directly in front on a crowded street, and that was fine. But what, what is going on with us that we think there isn't as much parking or we don't have the sea of parking lots that we actually have, Norman? Well, you know, I can relate to that um, reaction. When I used to drive to, to, to Yukon for work, I mean, I would be really annoyed when I had to walk <laughs> five minutes yeah. to my office. But um, the last 20 years of my time at Yukon, I never drove to work, so I didn't have that reaction. But it's something I can relate to. One of the things is that if you create an environment like Rochester, where you have destroyed the soul and heart of the city, people don't want to walk through that kind of environment. If you go to a city like New York or Cambridge, then it's okay because you're walking in city life and you enjoy that. It's part of the the process of being there, and you don't have the expectation that you're going to be able to park right in front. So it's partly about expectation. It's partly about the environment that we have created. I, I don't want I don't want Karen to revoke my urbanism card because just for five. <laughs> se- I caught myself that night, Karen. I want you to know. Well, I think it's kind of counterintuitive too because cities that have um, more. Um, more people walking, they also have tougher times parking. So, um, you know, when when parking becomes harder to find, what you find are cities that actually have many more people who are walking and out on out on the streets. So it's a, it's a little bit counterintuitive. But I don't often have that problem because I virtually walk or ride my bike almost everywhere I go, even in the winter. And what I was going to say about Rochester is I think Part of the cultural problem that we have to overcome is that we have such a long winter and it can be such a brutal wet winter that people just uh, can't even fathom, you know, getting around outside of their cars. Yeah. And 
you know, I think we're tying a lot of threads here, but that's part of the point of Norman's presentation on Thursday. And that's part of what reshaping Rochester is all about. Um, equity is at the, the, the core of this, the intention of dividing cities the way that it was done years ago, but also unintended consequences and what happens when you start to fill them. Will you get more people on bicycles and walking? Will you want to sort of naturally foster that? I mean, Karen, I'm sure people are incredulous when you tell them that you bike year-round, but do you th- do you see just anecdotally, do you see more people doing it or has that been a slow go? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, I grew up in Rochester and then I moved away to become an advocate for all the things that we're talking about today. And the sole reason that I'm living back here in Rochester is that I came back and I saw this incredible city coming back to life, revitalizing. I saw the inner loop being filled in and um, I saw completed bike trails going in and I, you know, I saw like a mature tree cover everywhere and sidewalks maintained. And I thought, why in the world would I want to live anywhere else when my hometown, my beloved hometown, has all of the things that I've been advocating for all over the country? And so it's been it has been delightful to to come back and to see the differences from when I grew up. I I was born in 1963, and I spent virtually no time downtown in the city. I was a suburban kid, and um, so I witnessed firsthand that people who went to work downtown, they would get on the highway, and they would come back home and spend no time downtown at night. And um, in the last two years that I moved back here, it's been remarkable to see the life coming back um, to the downtown area, and I'm so excited to to be to be witnessing it and to be part of it. We'll get to that question of how these sunken highways in Rochester and other cities are handled, and and how Norman sees that, um, you know, how to do it right and how to maybe make missteps there. But but briefly, Norman, can I ask you? Do you see these changes, whether it's in Rochester or elsewhere? Does it foster what I hope it fosters, which is more bicycling, walking, connectivity, or does it take more than that? Um, yes, it does take more than that. It it takes a, a purposefulness about understanding that the freeways was part of a system. It was part of a system of no transit. It was part of a system of roads that were built for moving traffic quickly. It was part, all of those things were a piece. It was part of a system of all the the excessive parking downtown. And so you have to do the reverse if you want a different kind of of place. So removing the freeway is one thing, but then we need to keep working to improve the transit, the biking infrastructure, making sure that it's safe for people to walk along and to cross the streets. All of those things go together because we're going from one operating system to a totally different operating system. If you get a lot of those things right, and you see it in lots of places in America that this has happened, Cambridge, Mass, um, Denver, Colorado, Portland, Seattle, um, Madison, Wisconsin to some extent, and Arbor, Michigan, etc. You see these changes happening over time, and it is always for, for the good of the city. Let me grab our first phone call, and this is Frank in Greece. Hi, Frank. Go ahead. Hello. I just wanted to say, uh, when I was 22, I had a classics professor at uh, MCC who used to talk about Greco-Roman ruins, and I thought he was the biggest bore. Who cares about architecture? 
But then one of my classmates took me out to the old toad. He said, Frank, look at this. All the furniture is low. All the seating is on the periphery of the, of the room. All the focus is on each other. You go to an American bar and you get nothing but cubicle after cubicle. American bars break down conversation. A British pub opens up conversation. And that's what I knew. Architecture is not for you know, a bunch of people with you know, MFA degrees. It's for you and me. If you could drink a beer, you could appreciate architecture. <laughs> <laughs> Norman, you want to handle that one? What do you think? I think what he's saying basically is that design matters and how we design cities matters an awful lot. Uh, um, it's going to change how you use places. The interesting thing about Rochester for me is that it was a really well-designed city, but um, the freeways, the parking lots, all of that degraded the the, the um, urbanity, the la the uh, life-given design of 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 Rochester. The the thing is that is really good is that the bones are still there. We can still build on what is there, so it's not all lost. But I totally agree with the caller. Karen is the executive director of the Community Design Center of Rochester. Do you find yourself noticing those little details everywhere you go, like Frank is talking about? Absolutely. You know, I, um, I marvel at the fact that uh, Rochester is one of only a handful of cities that is a Frederick Law Olmsted city. He designed um, not just one park, Highland Park, but he, he uh, designed a whole network of parks that the whole city would, should be able to enjoy. And through, um, you know, through years of, of um uh, highway expansion, whatnot, um, you know, some of the the parks being able to wander from park to park and get all the way down to um, Charlotte uh, Beach, you know, has been lost. And so I feel like we have this incredible opportunity to focus on the design of Rochester and really um, uh, make a difference for uh, neighborhoods, communities, and make a real dent in equity for everyone who lives here. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the future of Rochester after the Interloop. There's an event that the Reshaping Rochester series brought to you by the Community Design Center of Rochester is bringing on Thursday evening. It's Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at the MAG, the Memorial Art Gallery. It's free and open to the public. They got a reception that starts at 5.30 and the event at 6.30, and they'd love to see you there. The event titled After the Interloop, What's Next? And Norman Garrick is with us. Dr. Garrick is a professor of civil engineering at the University of Connecticut and formerly a member of the National Board of the Congress for the New Urbanism, CNU. He has been writing about these sunken highways, the impact on communities, and the path forward for years now. In fact, first um, was writing about Rochester the better part of a decade ago as our city began its process of, of filling and looking ahead. And we've got some some comments, questions from listeners that I'm going to get to on the subject of how to do this right and, you know, what equity ends up looking like. Um, but I want to take our um, our next phone call, and it's going to come from Julie in Brighton, and then we'll get to some of your emails. Hi, Julie. Go ahead. Hi. Yeah, I, um, you know, in listening to the show, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts was brought up, and I, I lived around that area for a long time. And um, a lot of the criticism about Cambridge is that it's become sort of 
washed over, like a lot of the local character, mom and pop shops, you know, had to close down. And then um, now these nationwide chains have kind of taken over, Harvard Square, I'm thinking of in particular. So, um, you know, uh, my concern about Rochester is, you know, how can it keep its local character and how can, you know, the communities that are already here continue to thrive instead of being pushed out? Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Julie. Uh, Norman Garrick, what do you think? Well, you know, that's the big dilemma in America because we have built these highway-oriented cities. And now that we are seeing that if you go a different part, you get a much livable, much more pleasant, much more lively environment, what you find is gentrification in places like Cambridge, like Washington, D.C., all of the cities that I've mentioned. As soon as they start going in a different direction, you see the property values rise. You see people that were there before being driven out. It's part of what happens in America when things become valued and you don't have um, systems in place to protect the local, to protect people that are not able to afford um, the new rents. You have to think about that danger because the, quest, the, the question you asked originally was, do these changes occur? Yes, they do occur, but the danger is exactly what that caller talks about. So this needs to be something that is thought of, is, is um, considered at the very beginning of doing things, and the Rochester is at that point now, so that you put in systems, economic um, systems in place, support systems in place that try to keep as much as possible equity and local flavor, et cetera. Um, Dr. Garrick, I, I want to just touch on gentrification a bit um, and then um, maybe talk about mechanisms to protect against that. But but first, let me try to put my student hat on. I've been hosting the show. This is my 10th year hosting the show. Gentrification comes up multiple times a year, often in a lot of uh, a, a lot of sort of intensity and depth. And so here's my observation as someone who tries to sort of corral a lot of feedback from from listeners and from a broad sort of diverse audience. There are, I think, people on the political right are probably a little bit more skeptical of gentrification than people on the political left. Um, but some of the criticism or the confusion does overlap. Some of it is kind of trolling, but some of it I think is sincere and it usually sounds like this. I hear people say, well, if you're a white person, you can't move in, that's gentrifying, and you can't move out, that's white flight. My sense over the years, and tell me if I'm, you know, off the mark here, is that that is a, you know, I understand that feeling, but that's also oversimplifying. Really what this is about is understanding the redlining that happened, the decisions of economic dispossession that happened for decades in this country that created communities that, um, in some cases, um, are predominantly um, black and brown. And so if you move into spaces and all of a sudden what you are doing is out of step with the character uh, of a neighborhood or you're, you're, you know, you're demolishing a house and building a mansion and you're raising, you know, sort of the impact is on taxes go up and all of a sudden people who might actually own a property still can't afford the taxes now, then you are pushing people out. If you are trying to sort of um, 
integrate into the character of a place and respect its character and um, and be part of the neighborhood, then that's a different deal, and that's not necessarily gentrification. Um, but it can be complicated. It can be very uh, difficult, especially when there is so much focus on knock it down, rebuild, uh, increase property values, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how am I doing, and, and what would you say are solutions to this? Well, I think you're totally correct in your um, your analysis, except I would say that it's, gentrification is not necessarily about race, although in this country it's often conflated because of how mm-hmm. the, economic, um, the, econ- the economics break down in this country. Um, I, I wanted to stay on this issue of race a bit because my sense is that um, suburban sprawl was fed. The, this country is the most sprawling of any country in the world to date. Um, we are having places like the UAE and so on that are starting to pick up the slack. But I think in America, the autodependency and sprawl was something that was we were able to do so easily because of racial flight and racial fear and uh, we the 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 proponents of autodependency fed on those racial attitudes to um to go in the direction that they wanted the society to move i think what happens with gentrification is not only about race or it's not only about culture it's also about affordability and so we we need to be again very mindful of the different kinds of of um roles that race versus income plays versus culture plays if we are going to have solutions to these things but this this is all part of the mix of what we're talking about here Brian and Spenceport, hang there for one second. Let me just follow up briefly. Is there a policy lever that you've seen that goes further than others in at least protecting communities from the effects of gentrification? Well, I think of the cities that I know, I think Portland, Oregon has done the best job in terms of at least affordability. Uh, making sure that they are building in affordable places while the city is redeveloping. Um, but that that is just ad, um, addressing one aspect of the issue. Um, I really uh, a little bit um, unsure to talk about this because this is really not my area of expert in terms of what is needed. I understand the problem, but I, I am not always sure mm-hmm. about what solutions are needed. No, I think that's fair enough. Um, Brian and Spenceport, let me squeeze this in because it's on this subject. Hi, Brian, go ahead. Hi. Um, I heard on NPR the phrase reverse gentrification, and I'm just not sure what it means, if it means anything. Mm. I I don't know what that means. <laughs> I've never heard that term, and I really don't know what it means. I would need a lot more context. Uh, do you know any context, Brian? I, I don't want it to sound... This is going to sound racist, um, and I'm not. And I don't want it to, but it was something about minority moving into wealthier areas intentionally to drive prices down. <laughs> Well, that is definitely a racist trope. 
<laughs> as if um, the people that are buying the places uh, can't afford what they're buying, and so therefore when they move in, the prices go down. It has nothing to do with the people that are moving in. It has to do with some bigger structure, if, the, if that is what happens. I, the person who said it was a minority person and sounded very eloquent. Um, I, I just It just flew right by me, and I, I just didn't understand it. Well, I appreciate the fact that you don't understand it either. Yeah, Brian, I, 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 let me just jump in here, Brian. Absent any more context, let's leave that one for a totally different day, uh, if at all. I, I just, I'd have to learn a lot more. Um, but uh, let me just remind you that we're talking about the future after the Interloop. After the Interloop, what's next is the event on Thursday evening at the Memorial Art Gallery. It's the Reshaping Rochester series, and the event uh, officially gets underway at 6.30, a reception at 5.30, free and open to the public. They would love to see you there. I've got a lot more of your feedback via email on a number of different directions as we talk about Rochester's Interloop, but also the lessons from around the country as these sunken highways are either filled or reconsidered, and we'll continue the conversation after this only break of the hour. Coming up in our second hour, a local minister is giving a lecture at Colgate Rochester Crozier Divinity School this week on the subject of building a gender queer ministry. Gender issues have, of course, been hotly politicized in dozens of states in recent weeks and months. And often, religious institutions are not all that supportive, but we're going to talk about a different perspective next up. This is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. 844-295-TALK. If you want to join the conversation, 844-295-8255. 263-WXXI if you're in Rochester, 263-9994. Let me read a couple of emails. And it's uh, on, I, I think, some similar topics here, Alex and Lisa. So Alex writes to say, One of the successes of the Interloop project so far has been the addition of more housing downtown. The governor's housing compact has some measures to address the housing crisis, but a common refrain for critics of state programs is cost. What do you see as the most lucrative path forward to ensure accessible housing? What are the key barriers to address in building more multifamily units or rezoning areas to be mixed use? That is from Alex. And then Lisa says, I'm still waiting to hear how Rochester will complete the reintegration of the neighborhoods with the center city. The sound bites I hear seem to describe the partial removal of the eastern and northern parts of the Interloop as, quote, finishing the work. The formerly redlined areas of what is now known as Wadsworth Square and the South Wedge are still cut off from the center and each other by the expressway's incredibly long high-speed ramps and loops near Monroe Chestnut over and under South and Clinton Avenues. These high-speed walls make walking, biking, and even driving from these areas into the center city intimidating or outright dangerous. It causes people to drive to go just a few blocks when they could otherwise avoid having to get in a car and park even during the day. This applies to other neighborhoods bordering downtown as well. So Alex and Lisa, different topics, but on the subject of you know, how to get this right in different ways. And I, I'm curious to know, Norman Garrick, um, you want to start with housing? I don't know if you feel like that's part right in the wheelhouse of your expertise or not, but um, Alex is wondering how we, if we're going to redevelop these areas, if we're going to fill up these interloops, um, how do you do that in a way that doesn't exclude? 
Ted, um, there are models such as in Portland where they are purposefully full about uh, making sure that they have a housing for all, for a housing for people that work in the in the in the city, etc. And um, I, I think that those models could work in Rochester, but it has to be a part, immediately a part of um, of the the plans now and not later when things change too much. The other thing he mentioned was the need for multi-family mixed-use housing, and that's really about zoning and making sure that your zoning is correct all over the city. Um, it's a really hard sell in many American cities to build multi-family housing, to build mixed-use with the banks, etc. But um, it's really essential, and if you look at some of the best neighborhoods in Rochester right now, you see that mixture of housing that brings people of all kinds of incomes, of all kinds of background into um, the neighborhood. The East End neighborhood, I think, is a, is a prime example of that. We need more of that. We need um, this consideration of what is called middle housing, which is a middle-sized um, housing around the place. Um, with regards to the second question, yep. I, I think that, well, that's basically why I call my talk after the inner loop, because we can't just see this as a done deal, filling in um, the, the trenches, and then that's it. There are lots of other steps that relate to things such as that speaker, that um, writer was talking about, such as making sure that there are walkable streets all over the city, um, that the highways do not impinge on people's um, ways of getting around the city by foot or by bike, and also eventually thinking of removing um, that section of the inner loop. So there are lots of steps along the way that are needed. It's not just, this is not it and done. Uh, Norman and Karen, I'm getting so many emails and phone calls. I suspect it's a, it's a harbinger of what is to come on Thursday evening at 6:30 at the Memorial Art Gallery. I will um, continue apace with them. Andrew writes to say, Evan, as I was growing up, I was told by everyone that Rochester was a test city of sorts for designs, products, concepts. Some things were great, some not so great. The inner loop was a mistake that will take a long time for our community to recover from. We need to invest in our neighborhoods in such a way where residents, both present and future, feel welcome and essential. That is from Andrew. And let me get a phone call from Tim in Rochester. Hi, Tim. Go ahead. Oh, thank you, Evan, for taking my call. Sure. Uh, my comment is that the inner, removing the east side of the inner loop was a great first step. But it looks like when you, as you approach Center City from the east and you come down one of the avenues leading into Center City and looking along Union Street, it looks like they've replaced the moat with a wall. The low-rise housing that they built seems, looks like a, a pretty impregnable barrier to accessing what's beyond the wall, the downtown area. It seems like it could be a little more welcoming um, than it is. And I'll just take the comment off the air. Thank you. Yeah, Tim, I, I hear that point. I mean, um, you know, Karen, I don't know how much time you spend down there. I think he's talking about right near the Little Theater, right near Ugly Duck Coffee, and, you know, some of those new buildings that are going up pretty high. And so, yes, we filled the inner loop, but it it doesn't, to him, feel 
all that walkable or it feels a little bit imposing and not as connected. I wonder what you think. Yes, I've, I've heard that criticism quite a lot. And I myself have some criticism about, um, I think the, the devil's in the details. I, you know, I, I often, uh, when I get sort of depressed about it when I'm walking and I think, um, it's still, the street's still too wide. You know, the, the lanes are still too wide and they're still too straight. And we, we didn't get all the details right. I often think, well, it's, we're going in the right direction and it's not completely done. You know, we, we did so, some of those things, um, the benches there, the buildings, the, the new building or, or the new businesses that are going in, the trees that are planted along there. All of that is going in the right direction, but I, I do agree that there's a lot of room for improvement, adding more crosswalks. Um, it would have been nice if there was a little bit more curves so that the cars don't feel the inclination to speed down there because mm-hmm. it sometimes does feel like a highway. Uh, but I feel like what is what is being built, you know, behind the um, Museum of Play oh. is really incredible. It Karen, feels like I was just new- going to say that. It's amazing how we're on the same wavelength. And what I was going to say was my son is turning 11 this month. I probably haven't been in the Museum of Play since he was maybe uh, six or seven. And so I had to be there last month for an event. And I was thinking it would be like the same thing that I was used to. And it was not at all. I got lost. I had to figure out where like sort of the entrance was. But then I came around the corner what you're, that you're describing. It wasn't just really attractive looking residential spaces, but the streets were curved and it felt very different than everything I've experienced. And I kind of thought, this is way cooler than I had realized. Way, way cooler. I was, it's unbelievable I was how it's transforming down there. And it's really just the beginning. So while I really sympathize with the caller, and I, I agree, sometimes you think, oh, why is there just a wall of this new housing? You know, it could have been, it could have had a lot more character but it's pretty nice what's there. And it's also in proportion to what's on the other side of the street. Mm-hmm. And like I said, sometimes I think, well, you know, it's not finished. Cities are organic, you know, and they're continuously evolving. So we're going in the right direction. Norman, what are, what are some guidelines in your mind about a process that different cities might take that would be in, in sort of in error? And I'm looking at the list from the New York Times in 2021, We've been talking about Rochester. You've talked about Portland, but, I mean, the list is Detroit, New Haven, Connecticut, Somerville, Massachusetts, Syracuse, Arlington, Virginia, Austin, three highways in Buffalo, Boston, Dallas, Kansas City, Seattle, I mean, St. Paul, San Francisco. I mean, on and on we go here. And so those are at least proposed or in process. And I'm sure not. they don't all look the same. So what are, what are the mistakes as you see it, Norman? Well, one of the things that is um, often a mistake is to think that you need to replace the capacity of the highway. And Mm -hmm. that's part of what happened in in Rochester, is that we see this project as being about, um, still about transportation, and they're fundamentally not. They are about the city. So you have to start with what you want in the city. How do you want to reintegrate the city? What do you want there? and start from that point, rather than thinking, what are we going to put to replace this object? And what are we going to do to replace the, um, the highway capacity? That's not what this is about. This is about the city, and that's what this caller is, is highlighting, the need 
to have a um, a replacement that integrates, that supports the, 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 the performance, the appearance of the city. Let me also get some really interesting feedback via email on, you want to go way back in our history. Tom says, since the filling of the Interloop removes a route of transportation, can't, now again, remember, Norman's just raising the point here. You don't have to perfectly replace the roads and the lane capacity, and the traffic often follows where the, the pavement is. But here's what Tom says. Can the city also undo the closing of the subway? The end of the subway was also caused by GM. Just imagine how wonderful the subway would be today if it never shut down and had expanded and improved since it opened. That's from Tom. I, Tom, I will just say before I kick it over to our guests, I'm a dreamer. I would love to see more uh, forms of transportation. I kind of get romantic about that. But, I mean, we have a hard time getting a streetcar or a circulator, so I don't know how we're doing the subway again. But who knows? Norman, what do you think? I'm not a really big fan of subways, especially in smaller cities like Rochester. Um, I would love, what I would love to see is Main Street being um, restored to what it was. Uh, Main Street in Rochester was once the diagonal spine of the entire city. And my vision, if I had the wherewithal to do it, would be to put a street line on that street that just joins the whole east and west of that city to downtown. And then everything would hang off of Main Street. But now when you look at Main Street, it doesn't even feel like it is that um, that spine anymore because it's been chopped up and really misaligned in various places. So it doesn't feel that whole kind of structure of the city that was there from the 1850s no longer feels like that because of all the things we have done to the street grid. Karen, is there like a, a dream uh, mass transit uh, idea in your mind or a different form of transportation you'd love to see more investment in? Well, um, I'm primarily a pedestrian, so I'm constantly dreaming about more uh, crosswalks, mm -hmm. wider sidewalks, more tree cover, particularly in the, floor, the red line parts of the city, you know, more, uh, more wayfinding from park to park. Um, I didn't even know there used to be a subway in Rochester. <laughs> I learned something today. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there's been all kinds of interesting things around here. Uh, not as expansive as other cities, but uh, uh, I don't know about that one, though, Tom. I, I don't know if a subway is in Rochester's future. Dennis says, Evan, the challenge of what to do with the Interloop land is to avoid going from a highway-centered use to just a development use. There's far too much emphasis on how to, quote, develop the land that will be created by eliminating the loop. Why not create a huge green space that will attract people who will want to live near green space? This will lead to a resident-centered use of the space, not a development-centered use. Thanks for an interesting discussion. That's from Dennis. Norman, what do you think? Um, I don't necessarily agree. Um, I think cities like Rochester need, um, they need green space, but they also need many green space rather than very large one. Um, I, I think there is need for housing and there is need for development. Um, some of that land could be parks, yes, but I think more important than anything else is how do you bridge the divide between the north and the downtown. And so whatever does that the best, some of it might be green space, some of it might be development, whatever does that the best is, is where I would go. But I think the um, important thing is to get good urban developers here to come up 
with a plan that is not about transportation, but is about um, bridging um, the, the city, the, the divide in the city. Deborah says, Evan, follow the money. Yes, car companies had an incentive, and they are a powerful lobby. But look at the, the money driver that continues to incentivize suburban growth rather than reinvest in urban housing. Number one, developers have reaped millions from housing, retail, and business construction in the burbs for decades, and that is still true. Number two, suburban towns profit directly from all that new development because it multiplies their tax base. And my cynical self notes that people with financial interests in the ring communities benefit directly when the city gets negative press. There are economic investors who benefit when crime goes up in the city or when the city schools have a poor reputation. There were those who played the race card to get people to flee. Discussions about the negative impact of redlining and highways that cut through communities is important, and we would be well served to consider who benefits financially. That's from Deborah. What do you think, Norman? I think she's right. I mean, I, but I think it's, um, it's a way of looking at the world that is about I win, you lose. And that's not necessarily how the world works for best. Um, in, in places where you, you think about holistically about the place, having a strong center city lifts up everybody. If, um, if Hartford or Rochester is strong, the whole metropolitan region benefits. None of those suburbs can replace what a strong center city can do for you. Um, places like Hartford, Rochester, Buffalo have spent, what, 40 years not growing, including the metropolitan area, and that is because of how the center cities are, which then reflects on the reputation of these places, on their ability to attract people that are looking for active city life. So I think lifting up Rochester down the city of Rochester is a win-win for the suburbs, but that's not necessarily how a lot of people in the suburbs might be looking at it. Um, and about our last uh, minute or so, Jane wants to know if uh, this kind of planning can also improve access and transportation or just um, options for people with disabilities. Transportation is tough enough for people with disabilities, she said. What do you think, Norman? Definitely. Um, the um, car culture doesn't benefit anybody. Um, it, some people need cars, but when everybody has to use cars, then nobody benefits because you're, um, more cars are not something that is to anybody's benefit. More people walking is what you want in your city. So mm -hmm. by ch making these changes, you actually could get less cars on the road and have more options for people to get around. Um, and by the way, Dallas says with the Interloop, they could fill it in with water and put gondolas on it. You talk about romantic. I don't know if that's happening, Karen, but... Uh, <laughs> I love it. I, I can that's envision it. I don't, again, I, I don't know if it's happening. I love the idea. But you have a canal already. So. Yeah, we do have a canal. We do, indeed. Uh, Norman Garrick is coming to Rochester for the Community Design Center's Reshaping Rochester event on Thursday evening. It's called After the Interloop, What's Next? Uh, reception starts at 5.30 at the Memorial Art Gallery. They'd love to see you there. The event is free, and it starts officially at 6.30 p.m. CDCRochester.org is the Community Design Center's website for more information on the event. And Karen, the Executive Director of the Community Design Center, come back and chat with us sometime. It was great talking to you. 
It was great talking to you. Thank you so much. Great Thank having you, Karen. Great conversation. And Dr. Norman Garrick. Norman is a professor of civil engineering at the University of Connecticut, former member of the National Board of the Congress for the New Urbanism. Thanks, Norman. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Great pleasure as well. More connections coming up in just a moment.